Esther chapters 5 to 7, and we're going to continue with the, the theme, the kind of the, the central idea of what this book is teaching us, and, and that is the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are working together. And it's a, I mean, we can look at this story and it's just hilarious. But I want to, as much as we can, because we know how it ends, to be able to walk with Esther and and, and Mordecai and Haman through these chapters and try to have some empathy relating to what they are going through emotionally because they don't know the end of the story. Because it's just emotional pact. It's just, you know, to see the, the depth of the, the trust, the instability. Um, and going to that verse, you know, Romans 8:28, that all things work together for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It's, it's all things. And so he's always working. We're never outside his, his care, his providence. We're, we're in his palm of his hand. We're, we're in him. He's in us. It's just he's got us. We're in the kingdom. So there's never any, any time where we're outside of his care. And yet we act like that a lot, especially when there's a crisis coming on. We just like a knee-jerk reaction, like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? The bottom's falling out. And I, and I want us to be able to, I know me personally, but sometimes it's just an aging maturity thing. We've been through a lot, and we've learned that, well, he got me this far in life. He'll probably figure this out too. But, but I think we live in times where it's going to get bad out there. It's going to get bad out there. It's getting bad out there. I'll just say that. It's getting bad out there. And we need to, to own the fact that he's in charge. Um, and so we believe in God. But we don't always practice that we believe in God. I said it last week. We respond to life like we're atheists sometime. Where's God? I don't know. He's not, you know, where, why is he not showing up? He's there. So, so let's go ahead and dig in here to verse chapter 5 and really put ourselves in Esther's place. We ended last week with, with her resigning herself. If I perish, I perish. She's saying, I'm probably going to die. I'm probably going to die. But you know what? That's okay. I'm going to be obedient to Mordecai. He's commanded me to do this, to go before the king. And I know what it takes. I know what it means. There's like nobody can approach the king unless he summons you. Um, So she's basically writing her death sentence, but she had resigned herself that she was going to be obedient to Mordecai, who Mordecai, his faith was strong. He knew that God was going to save his people. He knew that. He, he believed in the promises. He knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt. How that was going to happen, he had no clue, but he was resorting to the fact that somehow maybe we need to go through Esther to the king. So in verse 1 of chapter 5, it's on the third day of the just fasted, three-day fast, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Boy, do we like opposite, uh, what are those called? Uh, oppositional, no, what are those called? Those little prepositional phrases, you know, where they're on and in and all those things. This is like a string of those. But it's giving us a picture of what's going on. She's preparing herself 
to go see the king. She's preparing herself spiritually. She's fasting and she's praying. She's preparing herself emotionally by being a part of community, by having the um, Mordecai and the people fast and pray, the women that she lived with in the palace fasting and praying. There's an emotional support with that when you put around your, you're around your put, put, are, are like-minded and on the same task. And she gets herself ready physically by putting on her royal robes and getting all dolled up to just really catch the attention of the king. And then she goes and she stands where the king can see her. He's on his throne, on the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. He's out there, hanging out, no telling what he's going to do, what kind of mood he's going to be in. Um, But she's going to do this. She's going to follow through with it. Philippians 2, 4-8 says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, even born, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ submitted to the obedience of God the Father even to the point of death. This is a Christ-like mindedness that, that, that we are told to have the same mind, like, like-mindedness today. To be obedient even if it means death. Job says, though he slay me, I will serve him. How many of us really live life like that? We can when things are going well, But when we're looking death in the face and he's calling us to be obedient and to trust and to step forward in faith, you know, this was a turning point for Esther. She could have stayed in her little palace with all her luxuries and stuff like that and just said, no, I'm just going to, you know, she's been there five years living like this. You know, a closet Jew. She didn't have to come out, but she took a stand and she chose. So this is where she's at. So I don't think she's at a point where she's fearful, I think she's at a point where she is grounded in the fact that she is going to trust Mordecai or trust being obedient, the, the, the law of being obedient to Mordecai who was in charge of her um, to, to just go ahead and just be vulnerable like that. So she stands she stands. Now this king, Asherus, we already know he's a wild party guy. He's full of himself. Um, he's just, you know, massive wealth, massive fame, huge kingdoms he's in charge of. One uh, historical account I ran across of him is that he can be in a bad mood. He had a loyal subject very loyal subject, come to him, history tells us, and request of him that his oldest son be relieved of military duty. Bad day. Ashraf's having a bad day. He takes that son, slices him in half, 
lays them out there and made all the army walk, walk between it. So, that's probably several other stories regarding it. We know what happened to Vasti, right? So, he's, he's, he's unstable. So, very unpredictable. But we know whom we believe, right? We know the sturdy faithfulness of Christ and his promises. So, when he sees her out there, he also knows that she is risking her life to come and see him. She knows that, you know. Just so happens, just so happens, I don't think he had a lot on his agenda because the story goes on like this in two. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, and she was probably drop-dead beautiful like we know, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther his golden scepter that she had, was in his hand, and she approached and touched the tip of it. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. Boy, what a must have been a good day. <laughs> half his kingdom? Is he really thinking now? Or is he just so sexually enamored with this woman that he's just going to, you know, I'll give you anything. You're just so gorgeous. And we, we know from Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water, in the hand of the Lord. It turns, it, he turns it wherever he will. So isn't that reassuring to know? The king's heart, the leader's hearts, are like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it where it needs to go. He asks her, what is your request? And I think he's just true to his nature, just carelessly saying, hey, half my kingdom, whatever it is. Now, at this point, Esther is faced with a decision. Wow. Half the kingdom? Do I really have to obey Mordecai? This is pretty cool. Half the kingdom. Was she tempted? I don't know. Many of us would be tempted. We know Christ was tempted by Satan with the kingdoms of the world after he had fasted for 40 days. But she wasn't. She was determined. She was grounded. She was... She, she had a, a faith that knew that she had to do, and her people, she has identified back with them um, and willing to identify publicly with them now, and so she was on a mission. She was grounded in her faith. Um, so, Esther's request. What is your request? And Esther says, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may go to Esther's, and um, that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Obviously, he didn't have a lot on his agenda that day, right? Because it's like, okay, we're gonna, let's go right now. Let's get our, we're, gonna, we're headed over. We're going to go hang out with Esther. Um, but you notice, I also want you to notice as we go through these chapters, the, the timing, the pacing of it all. There's a quickness, there's a rapidness, there's a sleepless night. I mean, time is an important element in all that. So, like he's dropping everything, if he had anything that day, and get Haman, we're going to go over to Esther's and, and be a part of her feast. So she's there, and he asks her again, um, what is your, and he does it a little bit different this time. 
in verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Did you guys pick that out? There's two things he's asking about here. Now, did he think the first request was, hey, come to lunch? I don't think so. I think he realized she has something very important to ask him, um, request of him, and because of the life-threatening situation, the risks that she had to ask him, and she wanted to get him in another setting besides the, you know, the court. Um, and, but now you can see how he's starting to soften with her. She's totally, God's totally in charge of this, but through Esther. So what is your wish and what is your request? And again, he reiterates it again, up to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And then Esther says to him, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, then she answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for, t- for them tomorrow, and I will do as the king has told me. So she's setting this guy up big time. But meanwhile, we can see how God is softening his heart and even wanting to even just shower more things upon Queen Esther than, you know, because you know, a wish. What is a wish? A wish, you know, I looked up the words and it was like, it's a real tight thing. I don't know if I'm going to be splitting hairs or not, but you guys, you can play around with it. Because when she answers him finally, she separates the two. A wish is a formal request from an inferior to a superior. A wish, okay? I can say, I, I wish for a million dollars, kind of, you know? Yeah, that'd be nice. Or I wish for, I don't know, blah, 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 blah. I wish I don't have to go to the oral surgeon today and get an implant. How about that one, right? <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> The request, though, is, is you're asking somebody to do something for you. So do you see there's a, just a slight difference of a thing in there? A wish is almost like it may not happen, but a request is something like I really want this to happen. And you could request something, something of somebody from like a peer, but a wish is an in, insubordinate person asking a superior person for something. You can throw all that information out if you want to, it, but it kind of makes for some thoughtful things there. So he's getting very generous here. Um, she delays it another day because her request is enormous. What she is going to ask the king is on the verge of pretty much impossible. She's asking him, she's going to ask him to reverse an irreversible law because it was a decree. It was stamped with the king's thing. You don't just change it. You just don't take an eraser to that. It cannot be changed. It is also a law that's been put into place that was sponsored by the most powerful man in the empire under the king. Haman sponsored this. Okay? Plus, if, if it was possible to reverse it, it would cost the king 10,000 talents. So it was going to be expensive 
The king already had his eyeball. He didn't know what he had signed it to, what, what population people or how many. He really doesn't know what he'd done. But he was looking at 10,000 talents in his coffers. And he would have to say goodbye to that. Plus, she would have to reveal her hidden Jewish identity, risking a backlash from him because she had deceived him for five years at this point. This was a huge Huge request, okay? So she delays it another day. Did she get a little bit nervous about it or not? I don't know. Maybe the fact is that he gave another wish in there. Maybe, whatever. But whatever it is, God's in charge, okay? She's also demonstrating meekness. You know, oh, king, if, I find, if it finds favor with you, if it pleases you. This is, meekness in a woman is something that Esther knew the king was very... He liked that. He liked his women meek because he didn't like Vasti standing up to him. So she was actually being playing into the king and letting him feel like, don't we do this with our husbands, make them feel like they're in charge? <laughs> because she says stuff like, if, I, if you find favor and if it pleases you, O king. She was making him feel like he's in total control of his fate. Well, yeah, I feel good. I don't, if I don't feel good, I don't have to, to you know, fulfill this. But I, but I feel pretty good about this. Twice now, he has publicly, because there's people hanging around them all the time, publicly told her he will fulfill the request. He would lose face at this point if he doesn't do it. Right? Setting him up. Verse 9a, Haman um, went out that day, you know, glad of, glad of heart. You know, asked him to come back the next day, and he goes home, and he's just so joyful. What a great thing. It was just me and the king and the queen, and I get to come back, and he's just on cloud nine, hop skipping and everything, and he's just feeling on top of the world. His star was rising to unparalleled heights now. You know, he's going to be like, yeah, he's right up there. And then what happens? Don't you just love this? He sees Mordecai, and Mordecai is not bending down to him. Everybody else is, he's walking home, and he's so joyful, and all these people are bowing and everything, and then there's Mordecai. And the bottom drops out immediately. I know, don't you just wish you could see a face like that? Just, just total devastation. It drops out of the bottom. And he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Now, I don't think Haman restrained himself. I think God restrained him. I really do. I think God put a little thumb on him to keep him on a leash and control the wrath that was about to happen. I don't think he was capable of restraining his emotions, if you really want to know. He was all over the place, worse than a woman, you know, just all over the place. So he restrained himself and went home, and he sent for his friend and his wife, um, Zerus. And it's interesting, his wife's name, Zerus, what does it mean? It means disheveled. Wouldn't you be disheveled if you were married to someone like Haman? Ah! <laughs> so he gets them together and he tells them, you know, he recounts to him all the things of the splendor. 
He names them out, all his riches, the number of sons he has, um, all of his promotions and his honor the king has bestowed on him, all of his advancements and all of this stuff, and even that he had dinner, lunch with them. And Haman says to the queen and said, even Queen Esther, let no one else but me come to feast with them with the king. And I'm coming back tomorrow. And tomorrow also, verse 13, yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He lays his, it's, we call it all or nothing thinking. You know, it can be all going good and then one thing's bad, oh, everything's terrible now. All or nothing thinking. Very, not a good way to think. But he, he, he had so much anger and wrath that somebody wasn't bowing down to him. So much insecurity that, that he needed everybody to do this or else it was like he wasn't good enough or whatever. That it just it was totally devastated. I want to point out somebody else who uses the same phraseology. Philippians 3.8 when Paul says this. After Paul lists all the things that he's done, all the accomplishments that Paul has done, he was the rabbi of the rabbi, he was this, he was the, you know, the best Pharisee, whatever, scribe, whatever, all that education, everything that he had. He was a Jew's Jew. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing what? Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all these things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That was the only valuable thing, that is the only valuable thing that we can have in life, is Christ. He is the solid rock. He is the solid rock on what we stand. Everything else is going to wash away, be gone, sand, wash away. Nothing else is stable but him alone. Haman talking to his family, his, his wife and his friends. In verse 14, then his wife says, and all his friends say, well, let a gallows 75 feet high be made in the morning and tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased him, and he had the gallows made. Okay, went from a devastating, to happy, happy, devastation, happy, happy again. Okay, 75 feet high gallows now we already know that a gallows is that stake in the ground and they put a guy on it and pull their legs down right and it goes up through their body through their throat takes a while to to die 75 feet we're not going that way we're going to go this way 75 feet marked off by me this morning is from here to that door, to the back wall of the sanctuary. Not outside in the foyer, but from here to that back wall. So if you take a stake from there, and if we pull it up, that's what we've got. And we've got probably scaffolding or whatever around it, because you just don't pick one of those things up and drop it in a hole. You know, you had to get them up there somehow. So this was a huge, huge thing built. Why was it so high so everyone can see that, that Mordecai didn't bow down to Haman, and this is what happens to you if you don't bow down to Haman. Now, these words are very interesting because we're going to get to that in a minute. So he's happy about that. They're going to go on. Um, but here's the deal with him. He wanted to publicly humiliate 
Mordecai in this execution. But even if he did do that with Mordecai, the emptiness in his own heart would still be there, wouldn't it? It would solve the Mordecai problem, but it wouldn't fill the void in his heart, okay? All of these things now that's happening, the timeline, um, how the king uh, found favor with Esther, how he's just drooling over her now and just like butter giving her anything plus wishes and, and requests. This is all God operating. And he, wouldn't be, he would not be doing it this way if Esther decided not to go and be disobedient to Mordecai. If Esther decided, well, maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I'd rather have half the kingdom. But she is stepping out in faith and obedience. And through that, God is working his sovereign plan through the efforts of his people. God works through the faithful efforts of his people. All right. Now, that's chapter 5. Chapter 6 now is inserted between 5 and 7. Did you know that? 5 and 7. When we get to chapter 7, we're going to pick up the story with Mordecai, with Haman and the king and the queen. But we have this little chapter 6 inserted between 5 and 7. Chapter 6 has nothing to do with Mordecai and Esther. Chapter 6 is what's going on totally with God, right? And chapter 6 is the hinge on which the whole story turns. You see? And it, we have to look at Scripture, too, as a literary piece of art, how it plays out in everything, okay? Um, Esther's plan by itself was not what turned the tables here, all right? Esther's plan by itself is not going to get God's people free. But... God is going to work through Esther's plan and he is going to act and that's the turning point as God works through the faithful efforts of his people. All right. That night, after this wonderful feast, they're building gallows at Haman's house, whatever. I don't know how they couldn't everybody see that, but they're building gallows out there. Maybe you couldn't sleep because you heard the pounding. I don't know. For whatever reason, whatever reason, the king could not sleep. So he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. I guess if you want to be put to sleep, you would get something exceedingly boring like that. I mean, when you're, when you're read to sleep, we all know reading books to children, they can fall asleep at night and everything, and... They fall asleep, but this would be very boring. Um, And it was found written in the Chronicles how Mordecai had told about the two king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on the king. And the king said, as he heard this, Ah, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who were reading to him at this time around here said, Oh, um, nothing has been done for him. Isn't this remarkable? What a wonderful coincidence. What a lucky break, huh? 
No, this is the sovereignty of God, the remarkable, a remarkable example of God's providence here, okay? The king could have had picked from a dozen plus different things to fall asleep. He could have had a massage. He could have had a hot salts bath. He could have had the dancing girl. He could have had anything. But he gets this silly book out, and it just so happens we turn to this page, and it just so happens it comes to the king's mind that he cares about some common subject. He didn't care about people like that. Who would care less about people like that? But God put him in his heart. Well, what, what did we do for him? Well, nothing. Oh, that's not going to look good on the Chronicles that this thing happened, maybe. He's always thinking about himself. I, I, we know that for sure about this guy. It's not going to look good that I didn't do anything about this, so we need to do something for something like We have to make good on this, okay? Did you guys know that God has a book of remembrances? Yes, he has a book of remembrances. It's found in Malachi 3.16. Malachi, the last book before the 400 years of silence. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They're talking. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Pretty cool book, isn't it? So we have the book of remembrance there. We've got the chronicles here of all the wonderful things that King Ahasuerus was doing in his kingdom. And... um, He's going to make do on this. Impulsive. This king is also very impulsive because it's like, you know, verse 4. And the king said, who's in the court? He can never do anything without asking somebody. Did you ever notice that too? (sighs) He just can't make a decision. What do I do with Queen Vasti? What do I do with her? What should I do about this, you know? So who's out there in the the court? I need some counsel on this. And so they they go out there and who's lurking around there is Haman because he just cannot wait to tell the king, we're going to, you know, I want this guy hung up here, this Mordecai cat, you know, on the gallows. And so Haman was just there, and he was about to talk to the king about hanging up, you know, killing, executing Mordecai. And the king's young men come in there and, and say, you know, he hasn't let him come in. Verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, Before I get to that, um, I, I want to point out the, the timeliness of this. It's a timing thing. It's timing. It just so happened, the timing. Just so happened, timing. Who's there? Haman. Nobody else is there. Whatever. What's Haman got on his mind? What, you know, it's just a timing thing. God, God created time. Um, he manages time. Haman's there to execute Mordecai, and the king is there to honor Mordecai. How ironic. This book is filled with irony, isn't it? Um, It's easy to see God's hand working um, all things together when we see good things happen. 
when good things happen. It's more difficult to see God's believing that God is working all things together when only bad things are happening. But we need to trust him all the time, no matter what is happening. Because Paul makes it clear that all things work together. Not one thing, but all things work together. So any one event that you take out of isolation isn't going to make any sense to us. But all things are what come together for the ultimate wisdom of God. So here we have, as we go through this chapter 6, we're seeing this major piece in there that Mordecai and Esther were not even aware of happening. So in our lives too, things go on behind the scenes we're unaware of. But it's one of the things that comes together with all the other things for our benefit. All right, so back to the, the verse, the chapters here in 6. So Haman comes in and the king asks him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Think in his head, there's a little bubble in his head comes up, and he's thinking to himself, Who else could he be talking about but me? Big head, big head, big head, big head. And he says, O king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, and isn't this interesting what he pulls out? Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Mm. You want to dig in my wardrobe? And the king's okay with this. This is the thing that gets me, okay? And the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. So in other words, get the king's stuff, and let this man masquerade around as the king. Okay? And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. So when, we, when Mordecai, or when Haman's thinking, when I get paraded around town in the king's robe and on the king's ride, it's going to be one of the king's big, major people that's escorting me around, showing everybody how important I am. And let this person, this royal noble person, who has servants of his own who dress him, let this person dress him. He just wants to climb that corporate ladder, doesn't he? Just stand on everybody's head. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to him, to this most noble person. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming to everybody... Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Look at, this is what happens to the, the man who the king delights to honor. Look at what happens to, he gets to wear the king's robe, and he gets to ride on the king's horse, and look what's going on, you know, da, 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 da. Oh, what a great plan. <laughs> Don't you just love it? <laughs> what a great plan. So, the king then says in verse 10, King said, hurry, again, a time thing, hurry. Take the robes and the horse and, that you have said and, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. We probably get the same response here as we did when he's coming out of the first feast, all happy, and he sees Mordecai not bowing to him. I don't know, maybe this was worse. Do you think maybe this was a little worse here? And, and, and he says, and leave nothing 
out that you have mentioned. (laughs) No skimping on the plan here. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai. Get your arm in there. I mean, can you imagine? (laughs) I don't think it was done very kindly. I don't know. And Mordecai has no clue what's going to go on with this. He's clueless with this. He's probably snickering. Oh, that hurt. (laughs) You missed a button down there, you know? (laughs) I don't know. You can just, your imagination can really go with this. Um, And he took him around um, the square. I don't know. I mean, in the words, you can't see it. That's why I don't like text than in person. It says, "Thus thus shall it be done. To the man who, thus shall be done to the man who, you know, I don't know how he said it, but I'm sure he wasn't very jubilant about it. So he does all that. The irony, the irony that is in all this. Um, the fact that Haman asked for these things, he didn't need wealth, he didn't need power, he wanted to be publicly treated like a king. He, he, and who else in Satan is wanting to usurp the king of kings too. This is so demonic. This is so evil, um, the, the mindset that Haman had here. But it's so ironic in God's sense of humor that, it, you know, irony is the total contrary of what is to be expected happens. The tables have definitely turned on this. The tables have been flipped around on this. Haman's desire was to be publicly honored, not publicly humiliated. Haman's desire was to publicly humiliate Mordecai, not publicly honor him. Verse 12, poor, poor Mordecai returns to the king's gate. I mean, poor Mordecai returns to the king's gate, but Haman, poor Haman, hurried to his house, mourning, which means he had something over his head, as someone had died, mourning with his head covered, just like his tail between his legs, going home. And Haman told his wife and his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, and there's probably something to this wise men thing, his wise men and his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. These people were wise. They knew the history of what was going on. They knew about the parting of the Red Sea. They knew about all the miraculous things and victories that God had given the Jewish people. And if indeed Mordecai is one of these people, there's no way you're living. I mean, what a, what a reputation God has. And he still has that reputation. It's just the church. We don't ever do anything spectacular. While they were yet talking with him, with his head covered, whatever, the the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried him to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. We couldn't walk in there all down. He had to take off his hood and everything, and he takes off. Hurries him off to the feast. Um, Timing. I mean, timing, timing, last-minute things. I mean, the 11th hour things happen. God can created time he controls time and yet it's just beautifully laid out with all this stuff he's working he's working through 
the efforts of his faithful people. And now we're going to get back scene change. And we're back there with, at the, uh, in Esther's um, part of the palace, okay? In chapter 7, Esther finally asks for the request. This is the second banquet now, okay? She's, I believe she's still not sure how this is going to go. Um, she might be a little bit more hopeful now, but she also knows that there's a time element because they had the 11th month, 11 months to, you know, before the, um, once it was announced they were going to um, an- annihilate the Jews till when they actually, the day they were going to do it. But time was going away. And so in chapter 7, the king and queen went, so the king and Haman went in to the feast with Queen Esther on the second day, and they were drinking wine after the feast, and the king again says to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted you, and what is your request, even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Timing. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, which the answer to that is yes, O king, and if it please the king, let And so if she's found favor in the sight of the king, anything that has to do with Esther is going to please him. That's connected like that. If if he didn't like her, then there's no connection there. But the fact that she found favor with him, it means that he... She's valued. She, she's connected to him. It's something that he's going to take care of. Um, setting them up, man. And if you feel, found favor with me in the sight, O king, let my life be granted for my wish. Her wish is, she goes personal first. Let, let my wish be, my wish is this, that I would have my life. Wow, that's going to really shock the king, probably. And the request is, and my people, that they may have their life too. So which one do you think is a stronger thing? I don't know. I think the request is a little bit more stronger, like she's asking for that, and the wish is, I I hope this happens, kind of. That's the desire that I have to have happen. And for we have been sold, I and my people, identifying with with. God's people, she's taking a stand here, she's not in the closet anymore, to be, dis- and she quotes here from the edict, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. His words in the edict. You think it's clicking up here now? Sound familiar to the king? If we had just been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I, I, I would keep silent about this, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Wow, bombshell dropped right in front of Haman. He knows what's happening there. He, he, he gets what's going on there. Um, but let's take a sidestep and just look at what's happening with Esther in this moment. She has identified with the Jewish people after five years of concealing it. To be able to do that, successfully hide her nationality while she was living so intimately with these pagans, she must have broken every single law in the book of Moses. Laws for ritual cleanliness, 
laws for eating kosher food, laws for times and seasons to celebrate of thanksgiving, fastings, prayers in public. She was blended in completely to the pagan culture. This is coming to mind. I'm going to tell you this. (laughs) When I was in high school, I did not... I was a believer, but I didn't act like one. And when I went to my 20-year college high school reunion in New Jersey, in Jersey, New Jersey um, these people that I met, they said, oh, I heard you became a nun or something. <laughs> because I didn't have a very good reputation when I, you know, I had my church friends, I had my school friends. Um, and so I, I, I think of Esther with this, you know, these closet Christians, this, you know, and I think there's many, many out there, and some of them even can have the air of being, Lord, Lord, away from me, I never knew you. So we have to live out our faith. Um, so she had been deceiving everybody, but here's the, the, the blessed mercy of God. He even uses our sin for his purpose, doesn't he? He even uses our sin to glorify. The wrath of man will glorify God. And she had made a turning point. She had made like almost a repentance or a, you know, even though she was doing what Mordecai had told her to do, um, she, and who knows what was going on in her heart. Maybe she had guilt or whatever while she was missing out on all these holidays and celebrations and rituals and eating this food. I don't know. Um, but she's taking a stand now, and she's identified with my people, and she's requesting of the king that they spare her and her people. The king's reaction in verse 5. Oh, I'm running late. Who is this wicked man? Who is he? Right? Um, and she doesn't. She, she identifies his, his characteristics before she says that, who is he? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked man Haman. And he was terrified. I'm going to jump to the end here. Haman never even imagined that Esther was a Jew. Never, um, never crossed his mind that the queen was a Jew. Um, but now that he, the king, was in a little bit of a dilemma, not sure what to do with this, he leaves the room where they are, probably to go ask somebody what to do, right? And he comes back, and when he comes back, he catches Haman just falling on the queen's couch where she's sitting. There's a Jewish little saying that says that maybe the April, uh, angel Gabriel pushed him over. We don't know, but, <laughs> but he's pleading and begging for it. You don't do that. You don't touch the queen. You just don't do that. And just at the right moment... Here comes the king. Well, this is a good thing because it gives the king an out to execute Haman now because he had violated the queen, okay? So it gives him an out with that. Um, And then we know that he gets hung on the gallows. Somebody whispers in his ear, there's a gallows there. We'll we'll hang Mordecai on that. We're going to get rid of him um, with all the irony that comes to that he was caught in his own trap psalm 7 14 to 16 um talks about you can look that one up how 
That's actually a good one, how those who lay a trap will be caught in it, and those who start a stone rolling, it'll come back and roll over you, okay? The greatest example of an evil person getting caught in their own trap is Satan. When he thought he had won by getting the crowd to crucify Jesus. But the cross turned out to be the instrument of Satan's defeat. So we see the interplay of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. I'll leave you with this one verse, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So, God help us, almighty God, to to see your hand, to be aware of your hand, and to even have the faith to know it's there when we don't sense it, but to trust your promises that you are working all things together. We need to trust you like this all the time, in the good and the bad, almighty God, to your glory. In the name of Christ, amen.